0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John 16. I'm going to cover the last half of the chapter, verses 17 through 33. Jesus and his disciples have left the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and they are now walking on their way to Gethsemane where Jesus will pray one last time before he's crucified early that Friday morning. This is in the middle of the night Friday morning uh, at Gethsemane it was, and probably somewhere around that time as he's on the way to Gethsemane. Now, this is a long discourse. It's covered chapters 15 and 16. The last, the upper room discourse was in chapter 14 at the Lord's Supper. And on the way to Gethsemane is chapters 15 and 16. Let me give you just a little bit of context with the first half of the chapter 16. Jesus told him that he was instructing the disciples, all of all of these things in the discourse, to keep them from falling away, to encourage them because they were going to be put out of the synagogues, persecuted. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit's going to come to comfort them or to be an advocate for them in the midst of their persecution, the famous predictions of Pentecost there, and the Holy Spirit's coming into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he finishes up that section in John 16. He says, This, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Now that is that sets us up for verse 17, where we'll start in this in this audio. There are no parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we'll keep it right here. So let's read verses 17 through 19. Therefore some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he tells us? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, they said, What is this he is saying a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to question him so he said to them are you asking one another about what I said a little while and you will not see me again a little while and you will see me. Now we discussed this in the previous audio what are the options that Jesus was talking about when he said in a little while you will see me. In a little while you won't see me that's easy that means he's going to be killed within 24 hour period. But again, a little while, in the next little while, you will again see me. I'm assuming that's post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples after he was resurrected and before, before his ascension. Some people say it refers to you will see him and understand him after Pentecost. Some people say it, it's at the end of time, at the, at the end of the world, at the in, end of the general judgment, at the end of the world, the last resurrection. But again, I don't believe that because it says a little while You will see me. So I'm going to assume that Jesus is talking about the post-resurrection appearances. But now the disciples don't understand that. They can't figure him out. And that's why they ask in verse 17, What is this he says to us a little while? You will not see me. What's he talking about? Now, where did Jesus, he says, because I am going to the Father. Where did Jesus say this? He said this in John 16, 8, second half of the verse through verse 10. When he comes, he will convict the world. That's the Holy Spirit will convict the world about sin righteousness and judgment about sin because they do not believe me about righteousness because i am going to the father and you no longer see me now what he meant in that verse as i mentioned in the previous audio is because he's going to the father the holy spirit's going to come and then convict this world of sin righteousness and judgment now that's the answer that the apostles did not understand because he was going to the father he's going to send the comforter they hadn't connected the dots yet jesus had explained all that in the previous chapter about the holy spirit come coming but they didn't understand it now where did he say a little while you not see me that was in the previous verse i just read in verse 16 in john 16 a little while and you no longer see me again a little while and you will see me so those two two statements of jesus one in verse verses 8 through 10 and the second one in verse 16 created confusion in the disciples' minds and the NIV study bible says apparently Jesus had not linked up a little while with going to the father and a little while I'm going to the father they had seen them as connected but they didn't understand what going to the father meant in other words they ask in verse 17 what is this a little while you won't see us again and a little while I'm going to the father What does going to the Father have to do with us not seeing him again? Well, to us it's easy because going to the Father Then they're not going to see him physically. But they didn't understand what going to the Father meant. So they couldn't understand how they were not going to see him again. Now let's look at the disciples' mindset at this point. It seems apparent to me that they still could not face the fact that Jesus was going to die. When Jesus said he was going to the Father, well, no, that can't mean he's going to die. After all, we're expecting a messianic kingdom, remember that? There were things, they, John Gill points out, they understood very little of what Jesus said concerning his death. Now here's some of the things about his death they did not understand. They didn't understand the nature of his death, that he was going to be unjustly tried, accused, and crucified. They didn't understand the purpose of his death, that it was going to, that, that death was going to redeem the sins of the world. Now remember, this is all despite the fact that Jesus had told them several times that he was going to rise again on the third day. I think it's when Peter... I think coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and also at uh, Caesarea Philippi, when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Lord, was the Christ, and he would say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," but don't get excited because I'm going to die on the third day, and they just didn't understand that he had told them explicitly, and he also told. They heard him tell the Pharisees about the sign of Jonah going to resurrect in three days. They just didn't understand. Now, why didn't they understand that This they didn't understand before. And apparently they didn't understand right here at this particular point. Well, maybe they did understand before, but they seem to have forgot it at least. But they didn't understand right now why. John Gill says it's because they were overwhelmed with sorrow. Now, I, the question I ask, if they were overwhelmed with sorrow, that must have mean they were expecting Jesus to die. So on the one hand, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying about dying. On the other hand, it seemed like they were expecting him to die. I think they were confused in their minds. How could the Messiah be killed? That doesn't make any sense. So they were confused. Adam Clark says that actually they were clear that he was going to die, and that explains their sorrow. But they didn't understand about seeing him again in a little while. In other words, they understood half of this thing. Going to the Father, they understood that he was going to die to go to the Father, but they didn't understand the statement that they were going to see him again in a little while. So maybe they did understand part of it going to the Father, as Adam Clark suggests. It could be they didn't understand because they were expecting a temporal kingdom, as John Gill points out. So you put all this together and you see it: the the disciples were confused. They were expecting a millennial kingdom, but then Jesus said he's going to die. Jesus had told them that he was going to die many times. So if he's going to die, how is he going to see him again? None of this added up to them. They didn't know what to think. Jesus continues in John 16, verse 20, I assure you, you will weep and wail, but the world will, rejo- will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will, will turn to joy. Now that word for weep and wail, you will weep, that's the same verb for loud wailing as in John 11:33 at the resurrection of Lazarus. This is according to the NIV Study Bible, John 11:33. when Jesus saw her crying, that was either... Martha or Mary, I can't remember. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, that means wailing, beating the breast, howling. Well, this is what Jesus said. This is what's going to happen to you, disciples. You're going to weep and you're going to wail. You're going to be crying loudly. This is not just a little sniffle, a little weep. This is a horrible, horrible thing that's going to happen to you. But the world will rejoice. Now the world, according to John Gill and Adam Clark, this rejoicing is the unbelieving Jews. Clark says Jesus uses the word world this way in several parts of of the last discourse referring to the unbelieving Jews. I take his word for it. However, I wonder if it might also refer to the part of the world who eventually believed in Jesus. In other words, you're going to cry, but hey, the world, when they find out about salvation, is going to rejoice. I don't know. I didn't find a commentator that said that, but it seems to me that that's what it could mean. But most probably, I think, to Gill and Clark are right, he's saying, hey, the Jews are going to be rejoicing while you're crying, but don't worry about that. You're going to, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Of course, that's when Jesus is resurrected, and they discover it. They're going to be quite joyful. And again, I think that's what Jesus is, he, again, the whole theme of this discourse is they're going to persecute you. They're going to throw you out of the synagogue. So I think that's when he says the world will rejoice, he's referring to the persecuting Jews. And he says, but don't worry about those persecuting Jews, because... I am going, you are going to be full of joy when I resurrect. Not to mention the fact that the Jews are going to be pretty miserable as they try to snuff out the spread of the Christian church. They're not going to be happy at all. <laughs> all right, so we go to John 16, verses 21 through 22. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she is given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now. But I will see you again, he he says it again, again in a little while I will see you. I will see you again, referring to the post-resurrection appearances. Once resurrection Sunday night and also uh, eight days after the resurrection, the next Sunday night. And then up at Galilee, he appeared to the disciples all the time. And also independently, he appeared to Peter once, I recall, Uh, and also the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Of course, all of those people weren't in this uh, a group addressed here. So this is the original 12. But anyway, all, they, he, he says, I'm going to see you again, probably at the post-resurrection appearances. Your hearts will, will rejoice and no one will rob you of your joy. They're not going to go around and kill you and say, Jesus didn't die again, raise, rise again from the dead and we can prove it. And we're going to snuff out your movement. No, sir. Things just went bubbling along, especially after Pentecost. Now, the little metaphor that Jesus uses here is obvious. A woman in labor usually has pain and joy, both Both pain at the childbirth and joy when that baby is delivered. Well, the disciples had to go through a bodacious childbirth here. They had to go through the crucifixion of Jesus, lots of pain. But then the resurrection was like when the baby's born. We can all start rejoicing. John 16, 23, in that day, that means after the resurrection, probably the gospel age, after Pentecost, New Covenant times, and that day you will not ask me anything, I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now, that day, I said, was the Gospel Age, New Covenant times. John Gill actually denies that, which amazes me, because that's exactly what it means, I'm sure. It could mean the day of final judgment, and the day of final judgment, you will not ask me anything, I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name. When are you going to be asking the Father something at the last day, the last judgment? That makes no sense. John Gill properly denies that. And then John Gill says it ref- another option is that it refers to a time in heaven. And that day when you are in heaven, you will not ask me anything. Well, there's no context to suggest that. <laughs> I guess it's true in heaven. You're not going to be asking the Father anything. It's everything You will have everything then. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the gospel age, the new covenant age. Now, you will not ask me anything. You'll ask the Father in Jesus' name he will give you. And many people take that verse and say, see, they're not supposed to pray to Jesus anymore. Ah, but the problem with that is, we have people praying to Jesus. For example, Acts 7:59, they were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He prayed, Stephen, as he was dying, prayed directly to Jesus. He did not pray to the Father in Jesus' name. And my favorite verse, John 14:14. 14, 14, Jesus speaking, he says this, If you ask me, if you ask me, if you ask me whose name is Jesus, if you ask Jesus, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So there Jesus directly said you could pray to Jesus. John Gill says this, The object of prayer is the Father, though not to the exclusion of the Son and Spirit, who were both separately or in conjunction with the Father, prayed unto after this. Now that's interesting. I don't know where... I've never seen any verse where the Holy Spirit is prayed to directly. I just gave you two where the Son was prayed to directly. Matt Slick of CARM Ministries says that there is no Scripture where the Holy Spirit is prayed to directly, and I've never seen one. So... I don't know where Gil gets that from, but there are scriptures where Jesus is prayed to directly. Now, given those scriptures, why does Jesus say in verse 23 of John 16, in that day you will not ask me anything? Well, I've got four possible solutions to that problem. The first solution, which I don't buy, the NIV study bible mentions it, is in that day you will not ask me for information anymore, but anything you petition the Father for assistance he will give you. Now that seems sort of strange, but the word for ask is a little bit ambiguous, just like it is in English. Sometimes it means ask for information, and sometimes it means ask for assistance. Let me read you a quote from the Cambridge Commentary for Schools and Colleges. The Greek is as ambiguous as the English. It is the same verb, erotine as is used in John 16:19. It may mean either as there, ask no question or make no petition. The former is better. In other words, they're making a distinction between just asking something for information or petitioning somebody for assistance because I'm in need of help. The former is better. In other words, the way the verb should be translated is just ask a question for information. When they are illuminated by the Spirit, there will be no room for such questions as, What is this little while? How can we know the way? Whither goest thou? How is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? is going to the Father will gain for them perfect knowledge. In other words, we won't need to ask Jesus a little bitty things about what's happening to him, but that still leaves open the possibility or the reality that Jesus can still intercede for us as is promised in Hebrews 7.25. So, that's what, according to that option, in that day the disciples will not ask Jesus anything about where you're going, what do you mean, in a little while you won't be here, things like that, I assure you, you can ask the Father, petition for the Father, anything in my name, he will give you that and more. Well, okay, that's nice. I don't believe it, though. I don't like that option. Option B, after the resurrection, we are to pray to the Father only in Jesus' name. Now, I assume this is the NIV Study Bible solution. I assume that NIV Study Bible says that before the resurrection, we can pray to Jesus because John fourteen fourteen directly says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, that's before Pentecost, before the resurrection. So after the resurrection, we're only supposed to ask the Father in Jesus' name. Well, that's pretty strong because that means that I've been doing something wrong for years by praying to Jesus directly. I guess I have personal reasons for rejecting that option to the NIV study Bible says. I really shouldn't say that I want to be objective about it, but I don't think that's what Jesus means. I don't like option two. Here's option C, option three. Jesus means here that the apostles cannot ask Jesus anything personally. This is my option. Because he won't be physically present with him. But it's okay to ask Jesus something while he's in heaven. So the verse would read, In that day you will not ask me anything. The reason being, because I'm not here anymore. I'll be up in heaven, so you can't ask me personally, direct to direct. But don't worry about it. Direct face to face. But don't worry about it, because you can ask the Father in my name and he'll tell you. I don't think that's a bad solution. I don't know for sure that it is, but it could be what he meant. Here's a fourth solution. This is mine also. There's an understood merely in here. You will not merely ask me anything. So it reads like this In that day you will not merely you will not you will not merely ask me anything, I assure you anything. You ask the Father in my name he will give you. In other words, in that day you're not going to just alone buy my you're just not going to ask Jesus exclusively anything but you can ask the Father anything, you can do that too. And again, the idea is that, Jesus, that the disciples have never been taught to pray the Father in, in Jesus' name, and so he's trying to say, look, you can ask me anything as before, but, but not alone. You can also ask the Father in my name, and that'll work too. So it would read, in that day you will not merely ask me anything, but you can also, anything you ask in the Father's name, he will, he will also give you. I think that's a pretty good solution too. You know, this idea of Jesus and understood merely, it showed up again in this discourse in John 14:24, And I can show it to you clearly here. In that verse, Jesus says this, The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The words, the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. Well, now, are we... Does that verse mean that the word that Jesus speaks and the disciples hear does not belong to Jesus? The word that you hear is not mine? doesn't belong to Jesus, but but rather it's from the Father? No, it doesn't mean that. Obviously, it means the word that you hear is not merely mine, but it also comes from the Father who sent me. The merely and the also are understood in the verse. Jesus is constantly showing the intimacy of himself and the Father, and he's not going to separate his words from the Father's words. That makes no sense at all. So there you have it understood merely in John 14:24, and I submit to you, you can do the same thing here. In that day, you will not merely ask me anything, but you can also ask the Father, and he will do it. So that's my solution to that little thorny problem. One little point here on this verse. Ellicott points out that the translation of this verse... I assure you anything you ask the Father in my name has an alternate translation, which is whatsoever you shall ask the Father, he will give it to you in my name. In other words, instead of asking in the Father's name, it will be you ask the Father and he will give it to you in Jesus' name. Well, the distinction, I think, that is not really major in my mind. John 16:24. until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you receive so that your joy may be complete. Now, they had asked Jesus things directly, I'm sure, of course, but they hadn't asked the Father in Jesus' name before. And so Jesus is trying to teach them that. He's not trying to say, forget praying to me. He's trying to say, you can pray to the Father now. After I go away, you can pray to the Father in my name. And if you do, ask and you receive so that your joy may be complete. And again, as I've mentioned in previous audios, the ask is assuming that you ask something that will glorify the Father and the Son, that you do not ask amiss as... as, um, James said, obviously, you're not going to ask for something that's going to hurt yourself or hurt the cause of Christ, and you're not going to get an answer then. And also, I think he said, you need to abide in me, and then you can ask and receive everything you want. Lots of conditions to that, but basically he's saying, ask and you receive, so that your joy may be complete, or your joy may be full, or your joy may be perfect. So the NIV Study Bible and John Gill say that until now, they had asked the father or they had asked christ but they hadn't asked the father in jesus in jesus's name they hadn't tied the two things together niv study bible says that now jesus is telling them to tie the two things together and ask the father in jesus's name when he says that the joy may be complete when they pray that way this is a sentiment that was also expressed in john 15 verse 11 i have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete the things of this discourse on the road to gethsemane John 16, verse 25. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, all the way throughout the discourse, Jesus has been using figures of speech. He's not just talking about in the immediate preceding words. He's talking about all the way through this discourse in John 15 and 16 on the way to Gethsemane. For example, he used a figure of speech when he mentioned that in Jesus' Father's house there were many rooms. That was a figure of speech. Of course, the famous vine and the branches in John 15, that was a figure of speech. He just told them about an unhappy woman in pain giving birth, and then she's overcome with joy. That was a figure of speech, talking about their sorrow at the crucifixion and their coming joy at the resurrection. So, Jesus is using figures of speech, and what he's saying, well, pretty soon I'm going to i am going tell you plainly about the Father. See, a lot of this stuff that we understand now, because it's been plainly revealed to the apostles and put in the Bible, we understand it clearly but those disciples, in their grief and in their imperfect state of knowledge, they didn't know what was going on. I admire those guys. I know they screwed up a lot, but I, I admire them for, for going through what they did because they loved Jesus so much. The time that is coming when Jesus will speak to them in figures, and I've studied Bible and John Gill says that refers to after the resurrection. When he tells them plainly about things, they'll understand a lot more at, after the resurrection all the way up until the ascension during that 40-day period. In Acts 1-3, we see this, after he had suffered, that means after Jesus had been crucified, he, Jesus, also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's still telling them about the kingdom of God for those 40 days, post-resurrection, pre-ascension. John Gill doesn't take it that way. He said the time that's coming is not before the ascension and after after the resurrection, but he's But he claims, Gil claims, that Jesus is talking about at Pentecost. A time is coming at Pentecost when I will speak to you plainly about the Father after the Holy Spirit has fallen. And Gil could be right about that. The speaking would be indirectly through the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not telling you that I will make requests of the Father on your behalf. And here we have a difficult verse. In that day you will ask in my name. That means you will ask the Father in my name. And then he says, I am not telling you that I will make requests to the Father on your behalf. Now, that sounds like Jesus is saying, forget about talking, uh, forget about asking me anymore, petitioning me anymore, and making requests to me anymore. I'm not telling you that. Don't do that anymore. Don't say that I will make requests to the Father on your behalf. In other words, don't say that I'm going to intercede for you. Well, if you interpret it that way, you've got a major league problem, and nobody does interpret it that way because it can't mean that. Here's what the problem is. There are... Plenty of I'm going to give you three scriptures here that show that Jesus did make future intercession for his saints. Romans 8:34. Who is the one who condemns, Paul says? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So we know that Jesus is interceding for us now. So why does Jesus say, I'm not telling you that I won't make requests to the Father on your behalf. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus always intercedes for us. Then why did Jesus in John 16.26 say, I'm not telling you that I will make requests of the Father on your behalf. 1 John 2, one, My little children, I, John, am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So there's... Jesus making intercession to the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And then, of course, in the very next chapter, we have Jesus' high priestly prayer, when he says, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for my sheep. So it obviously cannot mean that Jesus is not going to make requests of the Father on the Christian's behalf. Well, what does it mean? Well, I have got five possible options to illuminate what Jesus meant. Here's the first option. This is John Gill's. Jesus is saying this, I will not pray to the Father for you to receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost because I've already done that before. John 14, 16, previous two chapters, Jesus tells the disciples in the upper room discourse at the Last Supper, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsel to be with you forever. So John is saying this verse should read like this. John 16, 26 should read like this. In that day, you will ask things of the Father in my name. I am not telling you that I will make a request for the Holy Spirit to the Father on your behalf because I've already done that. I, well, that's, lo- that's logically possible. I don't think the context really pushes one that way because why would he say that right then? I've already made a request to the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to say it. ask again. I don't know why he would bring that up right up here in the middle of his discourse. It, it doesn't seem it ties into anything. So I don't like Gill's option. All right, here's option number two, Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Jesus will make requests to the Father. He will not make requests to the Father who has an unwilling ear to hear. It's not necessary to ask the Father, an unwilling Father, because if you ask in Jesus' name, God is willing to answer you. So this is the way Jameson Foster and Brown would read this scripture, John 16:26. I am not telling you... That I will make requests to the Father and keep beating on his door and saying please, please, please. I'm not going to do that on your behalf. You don't need to because all you got to do is ask Himself. I don't need to bang on the door and and get the Father to listen to me. He'll listen to you. Well, again, I think that's possible, but I don't think it's likely. So I don't like John Gill. Uh, excuse me, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's solution number two. Now here's number three. This is the one I do like. I am. Not telling you that I alone will ask the Father. In other words, there's an implied alone here. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not telling you that I alone will make requests of the Father on your behalf. In other words, I've been interceding, and I'm going to intercede. I've already said that the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to be with you forever. He's going to intercede. And that Holy Spirit came for me. So basically, I made the request of the Father for the Holy Spirit to come. Yeah, he. I did all that, but I'm not telling you that that's all I did. I am not telling you that alone that that's all that I will do to request the Father on your behalf because you can ask him in your name, in Jesus' name, and he'll do it for you if you ask him straight. I like that one. Actually, I don't have any commentary backup on that. That's mine, so again, I'll take it with a grain of salt. I'm no theologian. But at any rate, I think this is what Jesus is about. He's trying, to, he's trying to get them to pray to the Father. He's not trying to not get them to pray to him. they have already used to doing that. He's trying to get them to pray to the Father that Jesus is, in Jesus' name. They're not used to that. And so they don't need to wait for Jesus on his own motion to ask the Father for the disciples, to intercede for the disciples. They don't wait, need to wait to Jesus to do it. They can go straight to the Father and say, Father, help me. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not going to be doing it on his own. He ever lives to intercede for us. He'll he'll be doing that on his own, but we don't need to wait for that. We can go straight to the Father and ask. Here's a couple of scriptures that show the same idea in the same chapter, three verses earlier, 1623. In that day you will not ask me anything, I assure you. And I believe that means in that day you will not merely ask me alone anything. I assure you that again, uh, in addition, you can ask the Father in my name he will give you. John sixteen twenty-seven. the next verse. Well, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In other words, I'm trying to get you guys to pray for the Father because you can't see the Father. You've never seen Him. You've only seen Me. But hey, I'm, I'm expressing the, the words of the Father. I am the expression. I am the Word of the Father. You're looking at Me. You're looking at the Father. So you can pray to the Father and you can pray in My name and you'll get just as much results. But that doesn't mean that Jesus won't intercede on His own for us. After all, John 14:14, 14, 14, He says, Anything you ask Me in My name, I will do for you. I don't think that promise got abrogated after the crucifixion, resurrection, or Pentecost. That's the third option. That's the one I prefer. Here's option number four. Jesus won't intercede for the disciples except when they sin, or Jesus won't intercede for us except when we sin. This is from the Cambridge Commentary. Let me quote from that commentary. The meaning, rather, is that so long as through the power of the advocate, the Holy Spirit, they have direct communion with the Father in Christ's name, there's no need to speak of Christ's intercession. But this communion may be interrupted by sin, and then Christ becomes their advocate. So basically, the Cambridge commentator would read John 16:26 this way: "In that day, you will ask in my name to forgive your to get to get forgiveness for sin. I'm not telling you that I will make requests to the Father on your behalf to get rid of your sin. You don't. You, but I'm going to be doing it. But you don't need to even think about it. You don't need to ask me about it because you can just ask in Jesus' name anything in Jesus' name. But." If you start sinning and you get your access to the Father cut off, well, then I'm going to, have to, I'm going to have to take over for you in my intercession to the Father. And it's just not asking the Father to forgive sin, but also just asking the Father for help, for, for, for assistance in life, for your daily bread, whatever. But if you got sin, then it's not going to happen anymore, so I'm going to have to intercede for you. Well, that's nice. Again, it's plausible. I don't believe that's the answer, though. Here's the fifth option. This is from Alfred Barnes. Jesus had already told them so many times that he would intercede. There was no use mentioning it again. So he said, look, whenever you ask the Father in my name, I will be interceding for you. In that day, you will ask in my name and implied, and I will be interceding for you when you ask for my name. I'm not telling you that I will make requests of the Father on your behalf. I don't need to tell you that. I've already told you over and over again, I'm interceding for you. And of course, when he's interceding for them, that does not preclude that Jesus cannot intercede on his own motion. Well, again, I think Barnes' solution is possible. I don't tend to favor it. Again, this is I'm not going to stand on the, on the proverbial hill and defend this one because this is a hard theological question. I I think that what he's basically saying is, look, I'm not telling you alone. I'm not telling you that you can just pray to me alone. That's the only way you can pray. I'm telling you, you can also pray to the Father directly in my name, you don't necessarily have to pray directly to me. you got to reconcile it somewhere, though, because we know that Jesus intercedes for us. You have to say that because the Scriptures are very clear on that. So when you read, I am not telling you that I will make requests to the Father on your behalf, you got to figure out what the context is and what Jesus really meant there because Jesus don't sponsor no contradictions. John 16, verse 27, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from, come, that I came from God. Again, the point of Jesus talking about the Father loving them is because he says, Look, the Father loves you, therefore you can pray to Him straight. You don't have to pray to me directly. You can pray to the Father. That reinforces what we just read in verse 26. John 16, verses 28 and 29. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Ah, his disciples said, Now you're speaking plainly and not. Using any figurative language. Now they know what he means by going to the Father and leaving the world. In a little while, it means he's going to die. They understand exactly what he's saying. Now, when Jesus said, "I came from the Father," that means he came during his incarnation, as John Gill and Adam clark point out. I came from the Father and have come into the world when he was incarnate, when he came into the Virgin Mary's womb and was born. And now here the the confusion that we mentioned at the beginning of this audio in verses 16 through 18, when the disciples said this. A little while, and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Therefore, some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he tells us? A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. What is this he's saying, a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Well, remember that total confusion. And now they say, Ah, we got it now. Jesus finally got it through the skulls of what he's talking about. Now, when Jesus says I'm leaving the world and going to the Father, I think it means his spirit ascending to heaven at his death so that he could be with that thief on the cross that day in paradise. Go into the, and that would that would go along with the idea that he's trying to tell the disciples he's going to die. Adam Clark says on the contrary that it refers to his ascension. I'm going to the Father when, when he ascends into heaven. Could be. Either one I think will do. It's not of momentous import whichever way you interpret that. John 16 verse 30. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Now the disciples say, oh, we got it. We got it. You're going to heaven. You're going to see the Father. I don't think that took away their grief, though, because that means he was going to die. Death is a hard thing for human beings to grasp a hold of. What does it mean when the disciples say that Jesus doesn't need anyone to question him? Here's option number one. Jesus knows so much, his inquirers don't need to form questions. No need to ask Jesus. He knows everything. And he knows their questions before they even ask. And he'll just explain. We don't need to question. That's John Gill's solution. Adam Clark says Jesus knows what we need before we even ask. So Gill and Clark say the same thing, basically. No need to ask Jesus. He could just answer without us asking questions. I don't believe that's what it means. And I could be wrong about this, but it says, "Now, Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. It sounds like question means to doubt you. You don't need anybody to doubt you. I think that's what it means. It's foolish to doubt someone who's omniscient. And now we are acknowledging that you are the Son of God and are omniscient. We believe you came from God. And I'm sorry we doubted you. I'm sorry we didn't understand. I think that the apostles are showing a little bit of humility here. John 16:31. Jesus responded to them, Do you now believe? Now, this is a translation issue here. The NIV has, Do you believe at last? The NIV margin has it like the Holman Christian Study Bible. The Holman Christian Study Bible has, Do you now believe? The NIV margin says, do you now believe? Now, how do we interpret that? If you do it the NIV way in the text, you believe at last, Jesus is showing happiness that his disciples will now believe. Oh, thank goodness, I finally got it through your thick skulls. You believe at last. Way, let's celebrate. Or if you read it like the margin, do you now believe? The meaning could be like this. Well, boy, it took you a long time to believe or you you believe now? You think you believe now? Wait till things start getting rough, and we'll see how much you believe. <laughs> John Gill takes it that way. He says he's, that Jesus is reproving them for their security, vain confidence, and boasting. I'll never deny you, Lord, as they said at the Last Supper. Reproving them for their sec- security, vain confidence, and boasting, as if their faith was so very strong that it would never be moved, and perhaps for the lateness of it, too. All right, we now turn to John 16, verse 32. Jesus continues, Look, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Now Jesus is leaving talk of his death and now he's talking about what's going to happen to the disciples. They're not going to be killed, but they're going to be scattered. Which, of course, fulfills that prophecy in Zechariah that Jesus quoted in the Garden of Gethsemane about the sheep being scattered. I don't have the reference in front of me, but that's what it's referring to. The disciples had faith, but they did not have enough faith to stand in the face of disaster, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. The scattering is exactly what happened. They all headed out of Dodge. Now, they hung around for a week, for eight days, for two Sundays, and then they went to Galilee. Of course, Jesus told them they would go to Galilee, but also they were scattered when Jesus got arrested. They scattered and hid themselves in Jerusalem while Jesus was being crucified. So scattered to his own home could mean scattered to his own home in Jerusalem, or it could be scattered to his own home up in Galilee because that's where all the disciples were from. But now Jesus encourages them after he tells them the bad news, that they're going to be scattered, and that he's going to be left alone by them. In other words, you're going to abandon me, despite all your protestations at the Last Supper. I'll follow you to the death. I think Doubting Thomas said that. I think Peter said that. Jesus said, well, that's the bad news. I'm going to be left alone. You're going to be scattered. But I'm not really alone, because the Father is with me. So that's a great application there. You feel like people have left you and abandoned you. You're never alone. At least you got God the Father with you. That's a pretty good advocate on your behalf, even if all your friends have deserted you and betrayed you. We go to John 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. This is one of the best verses you'll ever find for encouraging people in their sorrows. I have told you these things. That would be all the things in the whole discourse on the road to... Gethsemane in John chapter 15 and 16 and also all the things that was that Jesus had spoken to them in the last discourse at the Last Supper in John 14. I've told you all these things, lots of teaching in those three chapters. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me means in union with me. You abide in the vine as a branch is hooked to the vine in intimate connection and union. Hey, you stay with me, you're going to have peace. Despite the fact all this trouble is come, be coming on you And you're going to be scattered. He says, you're going to have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So right there in one verse, Jesus says that followers of him, his followers, will have two things, peace and suffering. And you think, well, that's contradictory. Well, suffering in the world, but peace in the kingdom. There's the difference. John Gill says, you'll have peace not in the world, but in Jesus. You'll have suffering in the world, but you'll have peace in Jesus. Now, if you try to get your happiness in the world by getting more money and more power, more friends, more influence, more people looking at you, you're going to suffer. You will suffer. Oh, how many how many testimonies have we had of rich people who've made their lives miserable? I can tell you famous rich people that have been miserable by the quest for fame and money and power. And I can tell you local people that in my own hometown have done the same thing and ruined their lives. Some of, Some of them have committed suicide. So... No, you're not going to get peace in the world. You're going to get suffering. You will get suffering, just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're not going to have suffering in this world. But remember, you're in union with Christ. You're in Me, and when you're in Me, when you're in Jesus, you have peace, and you can. Let, I'm not saying it's easy. It's terrible, but if, if you really hold tight to Jesus, He will give you the peace that passes all understanding, and you will have resurrection power resurrection victory you will conquer the world as jesus said be courageous i have conquered the world and you're in him so if you're in him if he conquers the world you conquer the world and that means all the suffering in the world will not beat you and will not destroy you with those happy words jesus finishes his discourse on the road to gethsemane and in john chapter 17 he's going to give his famous high priestly prayer we'll take that up in the next audio i hope you enjoyed this one